You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to Radio MMT, first for the year, Anne. We're back in 2024, we made it. (laughs) Hello, Kevin. How was your break? Uh, I did a lot of overeating, as I recall. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, what have we got coming up this week, Anne? We will be hearing a conversation that I had with Patricia Pino and Christian Riley, who are the co-hosts of a podcast called The MMT Podcast and they have a terrific backlist of episodes that people can listen to, like multiple episodes a month. So this sounds a bit like a, um, a post-global financial crisis uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. But before we get on to that conversation, I just want to remind our lovely listener to treat yourself to a dose of people power by coming along to the screening of a documentary called Finding the Money. Ah, excellent. And now when is Finding the Money? That's going to be doing the rounds of a few capital cities in Australia in March. And if you're in Melbourne, the screening will be on Friday the 8th of March at 7pm at Trades Hall in Carlton. And that's on International Women's Day, so that's easy to remember. And if you want to find details of this online, uh, you head to the Modern Money Lab site, is it? Yes, modernmoneylab.org.au and you can get the screening dates and the tickets via that website. And what's unique about coming along to these screenings is that you'll get to ask any questions you have about this economic stuff directly to one of the MMT economists, Stephanie Kelton, who features in this documentary. The world-famous economics professor, Stephanie Kelton, Mm -hmm. who's become a very prominent spokesperson for the MMT movement. Uh, And she is going to be there with the screening live in person. That's right, along with the director of the film, Maren Poitras, who we hope to be speaking with next month. Excellent. And Maren's made an absolutely riveting documentary, and we have a taster of that. It's like we're going through life with one eye shut and one eye open, and we're only getting half the picture. And then somebody like me comes in and says, well, let's make sure we see the full picture. Finding the Money, a pivotal documentary for our time. Finding the Money, on tour throughout Australia in March 2024, along with renowned economist Stephanie Kelton and independent filmmaker Maren Poitras. An unconventional economic theory is gaining some traction. Modern Monetary Theory, MMT. And one of its leading proponents is Professor Stephanie Kelton. Finding the Money, limited screenings in March 2024. Tickets on sale now via modernmoneylab.org.au. When a fringe economic theory goes mainstream, you better pay attention. The true story of money is not the story that I've been told. Hey, look, um, now I, I did write a letter to a prominent uh, politician trying to convince them to, uh, to come along to this movie. Would you like me to read a little bit of what I wrote? Uh-huh. Okay. So I said, um, I said, let me explain why I think it is so important that you and others in positions of power and influence become educated in economic understanding. Nearly all policy is constrained by budgetary concerns. We hear it all the time. We can't afford this, taxpayers' money, et cetera, et cetera. 
I've heard you say that you'll happily pay your taxes to support government services, but these sorts of comments plays into the neoliberal narrative, which is built on myths and misinformation. So um, you're trying to you're trying to be nice to them, but at the same, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's kind of like this carrot and stick thing. <laughs> I can see you doing that. Anyway, so I said, look, first and foremost, government deficits are necessary for the private sector to function. A government deficit is a private sector surplus. The private sector would collapse if governments didn't run deficits. This is basic double-entry accounting, and yet for some reason, no one in charge seems to be able to grasp this very simple reality. Uh, <laughs> these people are running government policy. These are these are prominent politicians making decisions on behalf of you and I mm. with a basic misunderstanding of, uh, of how the economy works. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I did explain to him that um, you know I'm a handyman and I've got a, a, a better fundamental understanding of how the economy runs than the treasurer. <laughs> And that's a bit sad, you know. Maybe uh, we could invite them to talk to Stephanie quietly on the side, see if she can uh, talk some sense into them. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, And certainly, look, if there's anybody out there that knows somebody in a position of power or influence, I mean, like uh, people do know people, uh, uh, we're in a position where we might be able to organise a private screening mm. uh, with, with Stephanie. So so let us know. Uh, email us at radiommt at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And will we uh, launch into a part of that interview you did with the, the MMT podcast? Let's head straight to that conversation with Patricia Pino and Christian Riley. Given that alternative points of view about the economy have been squeezed out of academia and our mainstream discussion... I feel like MMT has had this strange process to get itself into the public debate. So, of course, MMT, which is a type of macroeconomics, has had to create itself as a movement, not just as an academic school of thought. And I've noticed as I've become involved in MMT that the founders and the MMT economists They've had to find ways of communicating directly with the public and I see them using blogs and social media and doing things like publishing popular books and I expect many maintain a pretty heavy schedule of speaking engagements as well as doing their research and teaching. And meanwhile, non-economists like myself have also taken up the baton to get the word about MMT into the wider world. And Podcasts are an important part of the MMT ecosystem and there are two podcasts that stand out in my mind that anchor the MMT podcasting world and one of them is called Macro and Cheese, a play on the idea of macroeconomics and that comes out of America. Here on Radio MMT we spoke to its host Stephen Grumbine. And then on the other side of the Atlantic, there is a podcast very aptly named the MMT Podcast, and that podcast comes out of the United Kingdom, and it is hosted by Christian Riley and Patricia Pino. And I am so excited today that here on Radio MMT, I am joined by both Christian and Patricia. So a warm welcome to you both. Thanks for having Hi. us. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. Not everyone who gets bitten by the MMT bug starts a podcast, Um, but as someone who did start a community radio show about modern monetary theory, I really do understand the impulse to shout about MMT from the rooftops. I would love to hear each of your stories of how you came to MMT and how you came to be doing the podcast, and maybe Christian, we could start with you. Oh, okay. Um, My day job is I'm a stand-up comedian. a musical stand-up comedian, and uh, I wanted to write material about the 2008 crisis, financial crisis, and I wanted to know what was going on so that I could at least, you know, if you're going to write something absurd, you've got to know what the reality is and then go absurd. So you got to base it in reality. Mm-hmm. And I started reading a lot, uh, eventually academic papers, but, uh, you know, before that, blogs and uh lectures that were out there online and stuff and uh it became really mm-hmm. apparent to me that heterodox economists knew what they were talking about and orthodox economists didn't have any answers <laughs> but yeah they they don't they don't predict things like financial crises and, and stuff like that and then i thought round about 
2013-2014 that MMT would break through in a big way because David Graeber was breaking through quite a bit with his book and he'd written in The Guardian about you know what we would now call the ontology of money you know like what money is mm-hmm. is that the 5000 years of debt you're thinking of yeah and and um and i i thought it would break through in a big way as a sort of counterfactual to this idea that we have to have austerity mm. you know we have to starve the economy of investment to make the economy better if somehow which anybody that's not a phd in economics can figure out that's a bit fishy right mm-hmm. But it, it just didn't catch on. And then by the time we got to um, 2017, we had the Brexit vote and then, you know, Trump was elected in the States. And at that point, I thought things have really gotten bad. This thing hasn't broken through. Mm. And uh, so I just thought, I, you know, I knew how to make audio stuff. So I thought I'll start talking to people about it. Patricia was the first person I interviewed. Mm. And uh, it was so good talking to her that I just messaged her and said, let's just do this uh, you know on a regular basis and she said yeah so uh, you know i've been quite lucky there mm-hmm. patricia well i had a very similar um storyline to christian you know i think the 2008 crisis really woke a lot of us up in mm-hmm. terms of asking questions which mm-hmm. we thought had already been settled but to me it wasn't until the 2010 election in the uk where politicians were talking about you know all the money that we had spent solving the crisis and how the the government had run out of money and the debt was too high mm-hmm. we need to to rein that down and and that meant taking away benefits and taking away uh income support for the poorest in society. So at the time, I knew very little about economics. I was an engineer. uh, I still am. So I initially believed this narrative. Well, you know, if the debt is too high, then we're going to have to make these choices, right? It makes sense on the surface. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But there was a nagging thing about it to me because I said, well, firstly, we need to make sure then that the debt is too high. Otherwise, we're unnecessarily causing pain on a lot of people. So how, how do you know the debt is too high? And I kept naively expecting politicians to give me that answer, mm. and they never did. So I started looking for my own. And I first went to uh, a few friends of mine who had studied orthodox economics for, for that answer. How do you know when the debt is mm-hmm. too high? And I realized none of them knew. Wow. So at that point, light bulb went off and, and I realized that politicians didn't know. If, <laughs> if academics didn't know, then the politicians right, didn't know. Right. So it was, it was a political speech. It wasn't a, a, a genuine concern for the debt. Mm. Back then, a friend of mine had years before that introduced me to Bill Mitchell's blog and I had dismissed it outright as crazy stuff. (laughs) But I I went into a rut, so I thought, well, I might as well give it a a second chance. And I I started really getting into Bill Mitchell's blog, and uh, just suddenly everything made sense. Once it clicks, it just is impossible to look back. Mm -hmm. But it also raises a lot of indignation in you because you realize how much we are lied to on a daily basis about Mm -hmm. very basic aspects of our economy. Yes. And I decided, well, I'm either going to scream at the TV and politicians <laughs> for the next few years, or I do something about it. So I started writing blogs in my very amateurish way to try and um, disseminate as much of it as I could. I know it was a drop in the ocean, but it was doing something rather than nothing. Mm-hmm. So when Christian offered me this opportunity, it was like, great, I can just now rant, you know, <laughs> to everybody. And, and, and it's a much more cathartic way of dealing uh-huh. with the frustration. <laughs> It kind of doesn't surprise me that an engineer would switch on to MMT because engineers understand systems and also their models of systems get very well tested against reality. So if you if you have a false model, like your, your bridge will fall down or whatever it is. Yes, it's, it's absolutely how you say, you know, the um, engineers, they, they have a, a basis on science, but they solve real world problems. And ultimately, the real world is the test, ultimate test as to whether a solution works. And if it doesn't work, then we go and look at what happened and what, you know, what did we miss? And then learn from that and for the next time. So I, as I said, na- naively, assumed that every other field was the same way, (laughs) which to my surprise, it wasn't. 
I really liked the way Patricia said, once it clicks, it's impossible to look back when she was describing learning about modern monetary theory. Yeah. Do you remember those magic eye pictures, which were those optical illusions that play with how your brain creates a depth of field? Yeah. (laughs) So you've got this bit of paper with a flat image, and as you're looking at it, it'll suddenly jump out at you in 3D. Uh, I'm not sure if I was at that party with you, Anne. Um. (laughs) (laughs) What happens is that when they suddenly go 3D on you, you often hear people say, well, once you see that, you can't unsee it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Those, Those optical illusion ones and the rest of it, yeah. Yeah, people will sit there and stare and stare and they don't get it, but once you get it, you get it. And that's what you often hear people say in MMT circles because economics as MMT sees it, it's invisible to most people. But then once you make the adjustment, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's a moment where the facts start making sense. We've had all these things explained to us. And now that I understand some basic fundamentals of how money is created, where it goes, you can see through it. When they tell us that we can't pay for disability care or childcare or healthcare because we're running out of dollars. Yeah, yeah. Once you've seen that there's no way you can run out of dollars, you can't unsee it. Yeah. I often see when uh, people give a short bio that uh, the word activist is applied to you. Patricia, are you comfortable with that word? Um, I think I, I have to accept it because... Um, I only recently become uh, kind of an academic. So I started doing master's degree and now I'm doing a PhD. So I'm kind of formalizing knowledge that I um, learned as part of an activist kind of journey. Uh, and, and this is a master's and PhD in economics? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, Christian is also studying uh, for a master's. So so we're in, in that stage where we, we, we already know a lot, but we need to formalize that understanding in order to to basically move forward, you know. Would you agree with that, that, that there is a point where you, you can only do so much self-learning and then you have to kind of formalize what, you, what you're learning? Yeah, uh, I would just add that, that all the learning, even, you know, you've done your master's, you've got your uh, master's now, it is self-learning. It's just directed a bit more. So, you, you know, you, you are taking responsibility for your own uh, domain knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and um, Patricia, she was already inoculated when she went into her uh, master's degree, which was a orthodox economist yeah. uh, master's degree and and um the advice that she got is probably good advice which is like you know yes do that because then when people say you guys don't understand the economics that you're taking issue with i.e neoclassical you can then argue back actually here's my master's <laughs> you know I, I actually do and you know this is my master's from king's college you know mm. when they say economics is a contested discipline it, it's not an understatement <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah so I'm curious when you were doing your master's in, in orthodox economics or what sometimes gets called neoclassical economics, um, did you find yourself putting your hand up every five minutes or were you trying to stay more incognito? Um, I asked questions that made some teachers uncomfortable, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, I, I did it during the pandemic, so it was it was all online. But part of, I think, the drawbacks of that is that there's no... There's no chance to hang around at the end of the class and have a discussion mm, with the teacher. Yeah. Uh, it's really just them giving you information. You need to learn this. And then I think if we were lucky, there were five minutes of discussion at the end and then everybody mm. had to leave. So, yeah, I, I would have I would have preferred to stay around. Maybe <laughs> they wouldn't have. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I was never going to change our minds. You know, it was mm. useful for me to to be honest, just just stay put and listen to what they had to say from their orthodox perspective, because it, it was important for me to understand those arguments. Can you give us a sense of just one or two of what I call the bad ideas in mainstream economics that we are finding so problematic? Well, um, they like equations <laughs> a lot. And there's an excessive focus, I think, now on on mathematics. And the issue with that is, that when you describe what the mathematics are saying in words, it doesn't always make sense or, or they don't specify what each of the variables say specifically. So they will have an equation linking uh, 
money creation or what they call helicopter money as, as a source of inflation, for example. But uh, the problem with that is that they never explain what helicopter is or how it enters the economy. <laughs> so what do you, we don't actually have helicopters dropping money. Uh, so it's a completely... So you know, we're modeling um, helicopters dropping money out of the sky. <laughs> Basically, yes. And, and then other assumptions about, uh, I think one of the most damaging ones is trying to explain everything with demand and supply. Uh, as the ultimate thing that puts everything into equilibrium and explains the current state of the economy. Um, mm. it, it includes things like, um, you know, unemployment being a function of demand and supply, which necessarily uh, means that you have to kind of assume that workers who are not working, who are unemployed, are really just not wanting to work. They're choosing unemployment. Yeah, they're choosing unemployment. There isn't enough incentive. <laughs> yeah, uh, they'll blame things like the minimum wage and preventing the system from reaching this equilibrium. If there was a minimum wage, then there would be no unemployment. Okay, well, if you can call it slavery employment, then... Just on that idea that workers are choosing unemployment, what would the MMT perspective be then, in contrast? Let me just jump in. Mm. You don't even need MMT for this. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that our government in the UK and your government there in Australia does this thing called monetary policy. And monetary policy is even in the good times, the committee gets together and asks, how much unemployment do we need to create to stabilize prices? That number is never zero. <laughs> you know, there's never zero unemployment. So, so we deliberately create unemployment. And then if you go to the Warren Mosler money story, taxes in the first instance create people looking for paid work in the state's unit of account we call that unemployment people who are looking for paid work that can't find it that's unemployment and then whether it's voluntary or involuntary i mean patricia mentioned this maybe a couple of years ago we were having a chat to some uh, labor party people you know unemployment by definition is involuntary <laughs> People who aren't looking for a job are not unemployed. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's one of the definitions of unemployment. You're, you're always involuntarily unemployed. So so that trade-off thing, you know, when they talk about there's a trade-off between unemployment and price stability. Mm. And if prices are rising at a rate that the rate setting committee doesn't like, then we have to increase unemployment via increasing interest rates. That that whole thing, even under a progressive government, that whole mechanism creates unemployment. That's not a natural phenomenon. Yeah, I, I think we need to harp on that a lot more. Mm. <laughs> and then all the headlines are unemployment's up. This is terrible, and it's like, well, that's the system working as you've planned it. Mm. You know, only a job guarantee is going to fix that. And at the moment, with monetary policy. What the government are doing when people become unemployed, they're going into a buffer stock of unemployed labor and they're being paid by the government to do that. <laughs> so at the bottom of the economy, uh, of the income distribution, shall we say, um, the government are paying people to have this really hard life mm -hmm. and paying them less than they need to live on mm. being an inflation fighter, <laughs> being an unemployed person. Stay at home and be an inflation fighter. Yep. Yeah, yeah, which I, I just think that that needs to be hammered home, that that's what the government are paying for right now. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. One of the, the key... The key uh, neoliberal economic settings is, of course, the Nairu, and we, we talk about this the whole time. Mm. With Christian and Patricia, we ended up talking about that setting of how you manage inflation by using unemployment. Yeah, and it's uh, it's obscene. Um, uh, in this letter that I wrote, I'm just going to read this little very brief paragraph, uh, uh, then I say, uh, and of course, uh, we have the Nairu. A pure neoliberal economic treachery. Mm. In context of the Nugget Coombs white paper on employment, and this is to a Labor politician, by the way, it uh, it's complete heresy. How anyone in the ALP can consider this as a legitimate economic measure is beyond me. And that's because what what the NARU is, the non-accelerating inflation, inflation rate, rate of, of unemployment, unemployment, it's there to say that oh, we need to have a certain amount of people 
unemployed in the economy to put downward pressure on wages because if you put downward pressure on wages, you'll put downward pressure on inflation. That's the logic. It is complete nonsense. Uh, its real purpose is to put downward pressure on wages to put upward uh, mobility of profits. <laughs> and so essentially what you're doing is squeezing workers, keeping them mean, keeping them scared of unemployment so they don't ask too much, their wages stay low and the profit margins rise and that's pocketed by the top end of town, not by the workers. Mm. You know, and, th- and this is economic policy, economic policy based on the nonsense of neoliberalism that's been fed to us for years. Mm-hmm. And I like the point that Patricia and Christian made about voluntary unemployment, that it's actually an oxymoron or a contradiction to talk about voluntary unemployment because if you define unemployment as looking for work, that implies that you don't want to be unemployed. So you're actually involuntarily unemployed. So how can you be involuntary unemployed and voluntarily unemployed at the same time? (laughs) Voluntary unemployment is called... uh you're going on holidays or you've retired. <laughs> if you're a worker and you're looking for work, then you are involuntary unemployed. And yet these are terms that they use uh, as if it makes sense. Mm. And you remember when we first started this program years ago, Anne, mm-hmm. we were speaking to people who had studied economics and they're saying, yeah, we did the, the course, but it just didn't make any sense. Mm. This is where mainstream economists says that if you're unemployed and you're not offering your labour at a low enough price that will so-called clear the market, as they say, that means you're just not willing to work at a cheap enough price. Yeah. (laughs) So that was Patricia's comment about being a slave, as in how low do your wages have to go before you clear the market? And that's that's taught in economics. Uh, This equilibrium model says that uh, if you are unemployed, you just need to reduce your pay to a level that will suit the market and then you'll be employed again. Mm. And there's really no lower level and working for zero pay actually happens more than you would think in countries like Australia, as we've seen with all the wage theft cases, particularly amongst migrants on temporary visas. And so you can see it's easy to coerce people to work for very little when they don't have an alternative, for example, when they don't have a right to unemployment benefits. But it also happens um, like if you're in a well-paid job and there's, there's heaps of people working in middle management and the demands often put on them is, oh, look, we're paying you an annual wage. Uh, nominally, your, your working week is, well, let's say 38 to 45 hours a week. But in brackets, wink, wink, you'll be expected to work a bit more than that. And uh, no, we won't be paying you any extra. But that'll that'll set you on the on the uh, on the road to a more senior position, which often means taking on more responsibility with even more hours and not getting paid for that as well. These are all unpaid hours. Yep. And very interesting to hear them uh, refer to helicopter money because you hear this all the time. If the government just prints money, it's going to cause inflation and it's going to disrupt the economy. It's like throwing money out of a helicopter. This is the helicopter uh, concept is we just create a whole bunch of money and then drop it from helicopters randomly in the economy. That's the concept that people think of when, when they talk about printing money. It's the image. Yeah. So the government has never just printed money. They were placing money into the economy to pay for things. Mm. The, the closest you could come to that was when I think Rudd during the GFC started handing out $1,200 to every family just to go spending. But that was, again, targeted. It was just to promote people spending into the economy so that businesses could uh, continue during a financial crisis. Yeah, that was targeted towards consumption, a little bit like the JobKeeper was targeted towards keeping employees and employers connected and helping the employees pay their rent and all their bills as usual. Yeah, that's as close as it gets. There's, there's never this just random printing of money and then throwing it into the population. You're with Anne and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us. Let's head to that conversation with Patricia Pino and Christian Riley. Christian, um, from what I've seen of what you produce online, I I do get a sense that um, you really love that combination of communicating these ideas 
along with entertainment. And I, I'm wondering, um, as well as understanding how engineers get into MMT, I can understand how people who are creatives would get into it because creatives are, you know, the original gig economy and I suspect often, you know, experience financial insecurity. And I'm just wondering what it is that's enabled you to stick with the MMT gig for so long now. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just testament to my ability to <laughs> go all in on, on things that are, uh, you know, not uh, rewarding in nominal monetary terms. <laughs> See, I can say things like that now because I've been studying this. <laughs> you can throw that economic jargon around. Um you know, anybody that, that does that kind of thing really is, you do feel a bit like uh, the canary in the coal mine when there's a downturn. I know that we're not, you know, when I say we, I mean people in a, in a literal gig economy. Like, so when the, when people's disposable income takes a dive, you know, they think, well, we're obviously not going out this week and we may not be going out this month. And so if you're in live entertainment or, or, or the leisure sector, mm. you know, that's uh that's a problem so you kind of look at that as a reality and think okay well what am i gonna what am i gonna do you know that's uh, it's a challenge mm, mm. yeah and it seems to me we do spend a lot of time at work too much time probably and this is probably where i got my embrace of things that aren't necessarily lucrative <laughs> uh it, it, from an early age i've always thought well that me that means work is necessary and at some point, you're going to just be working really, really hard. So find work that you can do that you love, you know, that you would be doing if the money went away. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much how I ended up here. Yeah, yeah. I often think of um, people who work in the arts and entertainment industry as, as ripe for conversion to modern monetary theory. <laughs> um Although I feel like the um, universal basic income has made inroads into that sector as well in terms of people looking for how do we supply secure work to everyone. And so the UBI sort of occupies that same headspace that we, we would like to see the um, job guarantee occupy. I think, you know, you know, a revolution without popular backing is a coup. So mm -hmm. we, we want we want this thing to be popular. So you can see that UBI, if you sort of say, okay, well, the government's going to pay you this much income so that you can work less, uh, it, it's very appealing. But then obviously we take that a step further and go, yeah, if the government's giving everybody the same amount of basic income, everybody from the people that need it to live on to the people that are just going to save it and, you know, get a free house every five years out of it. That's going to increase the wealth gap. It's going to deepen inequality. Mm. Uh, and more importantly, it doesn't do anything to address this idea that the, the main price setters in an economy, you know, those commercial agents with price setting power, which as we've seen in this last bout of uh, seller's inflation, those people are going to put their prices up the, mm -hmm. and so so the the basic income comes in it goes out and it enriches the people that are already rich one way or another mm. so then you go okay a job guarantee is a way to distribute the necessary work equitably so so the idea is if we want everybody to be working less then if you institute a job guarantee that's a 30 hour week and it's paid at a socially inclusive wage the private sector has to fall into line with that. And all of a sudden we've got that leisure time that, that we want, mm. that time to just think about nothing, maybe think about how things could be better. <laughs> well, one of my personal theories is um, powers that be do not want to see a reduced working week precisely because people might have time to start thinking about the situation. Yeah. But, but I, do, I do think we need to have a conversation about what constitutes work as well. And very often mm. when we have these discussions on job guarantee or UBI, uh, you, you realize that people struggle to get out of imagining work as something different to what we have right now. And it's often uh, defined as, you know, work is whatever the private sector offers me to do mm -hmm. or whatever makes the private sector a profit. 
you know, I, I love to work, but much of the work that I do is unpaid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously not, not, not the podcast, but I, I like to draw in my spare time. And, you know, mm-hmm. I consider that productive work. Mm-hmm. Um, society at the moment does not consider that productive work. If you read David Graver's uh, Bullshit Jobs book, you'll mm-hmm. find a lot of jobs that are paid, but are yet questionably not productive. And yet there is an awful lot of work that needs doing um, that is completely unremunerated. Um, You know, climate change action, but also social care work, a lot of which is done by women at home. And as well as, you know, we we can have a discussion as as housework and and raising children and how much does that add to the GDP? You know, Mm. we are used to not thinking of these Mm. things as as work in the sense of things that contribute to society. But I Mm. believe they definitely do. I love that questioning that you're doing about what is work, because it's an example of how once you get a taste of this economics, you can start questioning how society operates. I I was going to say, you know, you, you just said you know, I, I like to draw and I find that rewarding. Society doesn't because I don't get a, an income from that. I think society does reward art all the time. I mean, everything on everybody's walls right now, that's all art. <laughs> Every time you've got some spare time and you really want to just take your brain out and relax, what do you do? You flick on the TV. or so mm-hmm. What you're watching has been created by artists and creative people is what people do with their uh, consumption tokens, if we can call yeah. it that. I think I should have made a distinction. Be- you know, when I say society, I mean really government. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. you know, the currency is the way that government expresses support for a particular activity. I guess, yes. and and, yes. and and yet you can have activities which are largely appreciated by society. You know, charity work, all this stuff, but which is not recognised by our government as being useful. One of the things that Christian was pointing out is that a job guarantee does have the potential to reorganize how we distribute resources and that includes the resource of our own time yeah (laughs) and so the job guarantee would be i think the fairest and quickest way to reduce the hours of the working week that would be if, if the job guarantee could accelerate one thing more than anything else it's this rationalization of how much work we actually need to be doing to get by as opposed to how much work we're actually doing to keep extremely rich people even richer so much of our time and effort goes to providing profit for organisations and people. Mm. Now, if you had a job guarantee came in and organisations had to compete against a government scheme that stipulated 30 hours was a, uh, a normal working week and you're going to get paid well for that, then that's a game changer. Everything changes then. Mm. can see why some of the profiteers might, might not be keen on a job guarantee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But the thing is, there's more of us workers than there are of these people in profits, Anne. And this is this. That's what we have to remember. This is the frustrating thing is mm. you can see the reasons why it doesn't happen because the people with the money have the positions of influence and power. Mm. But we, the downtrodden workers, uh, outnumber them vastly. And if we could <laughs> possibly get organised, and that used to be done through unions, and they've, of course, been pulled apart. Well, coming along to watch the documentary, um, you'll get into a room with like-minded people that you could potentially organise with. So so bring your... Bring your um, pitchforks and flaming torches to the to the movie not for the movie but when you walk out you might feel so motivated we, we just just launch straight into it that would be lovely uh, well i do think about how um so many surveys show that two-thirds of the population do want action on the oncoming climate catastrophe or they do even want universal basic services but this keeps not happening yeah so In my darker moments, I'm not sure that even if two-thirds of the population understood the economy through the MMT lens, you know, understood that the federal government can never run out of Australian dollars, I mean, would that get us going towards a green transition or, you know, do we still have to get out the pitchforks? I think we we have to get the pitchforks out. I I think uh, as a population, we've become so conditioned to this false hope of enormous economic success you too can make it big time uh, if you just stick to the plan you know if you stick to the formula and people believe that and they just keep thinking to themselves look if I just keep at it my break will come and, and everything will be terrific so don't change the program because I've got my hopes on on being an enormous success mm. you know and then decades down the track they realize oh 
it's never going to happen. And and but by that stage, they've been replaced by somebody who's younger, and and uh, and the cycle <laughs> continues. <laughs> You are in a bit of a pessimistic mood today. Kevin. That's a reality check, Anne. It's not a pessimistic mood. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev. Great program. Great guests. <laughs> Christian, I have heard you say, so I'm not outing you, I think this is in the in the public record, politically that you align with the left-leaning libertarian traditions. And I'm kind of curious as to what might be your theory of change as we look at what the possibilities are. Particularly, I'm wondering about how you see the role of the state because I talk to lefties sometimes and they want to smash the state, as they say. <laughs> and now that we know that it's the currency issuer, and what are we going to do about the state? Yeah, I, I in the past, have very much relate to libertarian socialism as uh, somebody like Noam Chomsky would describe it, cooperation without constraint, basically. But um, that's not anti-state. Uh, I mean, once you understand that economics is the study, as we're learning, it's, it's the study of social provisioning, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, the state is this uh, institution. It's this human institution. You know, it's not some alien thing that comes in from the outside and beats us all over the head. Uh, it, it's, a, it's the idea that some things need to be organized at the scale of the, the national government. And um, uh, as we've discovered in Britain, when you privatize these things like our water and stuff like that, things at that scale, when they're organized with a with the profit motive in mind, it doesn't go so well. You know, we've got leaky pipes leaking like trillions mm. of gallons of water and, you know, there's excrement in the water. In Australia, we have internet that doesn't work particularly well. <laughs> So, um, you know, that's going to get in the way of cooperation without constraint, not having clean water or using the generation of clean water as a profit center. <laughs> you know, not only now do you have to provision the clean water, but you also have to generate returns for shareholders and uh, dividends and, and bonuses. So it's, it seems to me just at the level of a thought experiment, a really inefficient way to go about organizing a natural monopoly. Mm. So, um, the, and the reason I don't really attach the word libertarian to left anymore is because the word has been so co-opted by the right that it's just, it's starting to become meaningless. You know, like if you describe yourself as a socialist, you then have to sort of describe what you mean by socialism because it's been so co-opted by various uh, different strands of economic thought and political thought, you know, and, and the same things happen to libertarianism. Mm. I guess one of the things that MMT has done for me, or using the MMT lens, as they say, is, um, you know, it really reveals when things are a political choice versus an economic necessity, things like the rate of unemployment. And so more and more, I guess, what is revealed to me is when the state of play in any discussion, whatever it is, you know, dealing with climate change, dealing with inequality, is more about political will. So I'm just wondering how MMT has affected your worldview on these things and kind of where it leaves you as far as um, how you see that we can actually create a society and an economy that works for everyone and works for the planet? I think there's a common misconception out there that we get a lot that is that, you know, MMT is inherently left-wing. Patricia Pino. Or um, some people on the right will accuse MMTs of that or or vice versa, you know, that MMT, you know, can inherently be used as a, as a weapon for the right as well for their objectives. And the truth is that MMT is just a description of how the economy works and it it doesn't guarantee a particular way of doing mm. things. It doesn't guarantee that politicians are going to behave in a certain way. A, a politician with very different objectives can achieve very different things with an understanding of, of the monetary system. 
so there isn't anything inherent in disseminating MNT which is explicitly left wing or right wing. Mm. However, we have, you know, uh, over the last three decades, the, the prevailing economic knowledge is is obviously mistaken. And that kind of mischaracterization of how the monetary system works has been weaponized to support particular types of policies. So increasing transparency of how our system works, increasing understanding in, in the mind of the public will inherently make us question those kind of things that we have taken for granted. You know, things like the government is running out of money or yes. you know, there's no money for the NHS and things that... Uh, has been used by our politicians as justification for what actually were really political opinions. Uh, our Tory party, you know, likes to say there's not enough money for the NHS. Mm. What they should really be saying is we do not believe in the NHS. We do not want to supply universal health care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and they have, I'm sure, pretty strong ideological reasons for that. The problem is that it's much harder for them to defend them on the basis of them being ideological reasons. And it's much easier for them to defend them on the basis of there is no money. Mm, yeah. You, you, you end the argument there. So that's what MMT does, I think. MMT, in a way, has a democratizing effect by merely, you know, expanding understanding of how things actually work and what's really at stake and the, and the real choices that we have to make. Uh, the other thing which I found interesting listening to Christian and Patricia was... Uh, the perception that that MMT is something of a, a the lefty sort of progressive movement, mm. and we've said this a few times, and and so have the authors of MMT. They they regard it as a a neutral tool mm. of just analysing and and uh, and looking at how the economy works. But I think the reason that MMT cops this uh, reputation for being a, a lefty a lefty movement, and I don't mind that because I am a lefty, um, mm-hmm. is that. The economy at the moment, when you look at it and you analyse it, you can see just how far to the right all the settings are. Yeah, settings like austerity where they say you need to spend less because the government's going to run out of money, which means the government ends up providing less in the way of services. And we would go the opposite way and say there are certain things that should be universal services like dental care and health care and so on. Yeah, you know, and the privatisation of government services and mm-hmm. just the, the inequality that the, the current system produces. These are all symptoms of a, a right-wing agenda, of a neoliberal agenda. Mm. And and it suits their political purpose. The, the neoliberal agenda is for the individual to maximise their economic potential mm. that equals inequality uh, because if somebody's maximizing the way they're doing it is by minimizing other people right and these are all policy settings which mmt it, it doesn't necessarily attack it just exposes them it just explains them so mmt lifts the veil on that justification that's usually an economic justification when really it's a political justification of the distribution of resources so I think MMT is, in and of itself, it might not be political. It's simply describing how money is created and flows through the economy. But learning about MMT can be a political act. I think a powerful talking point is to a newbie is understand the government only ever spends one way. Christian Riley. You know, a lot of people think, well, yeah, the government can if it chooses do this thing where it types money into a computer and, and money now exists. So it's like, no, that's the only way the government spends. And whether the, the government records a deficit or a surplus at the end of the accounting period is a statistic. It's after the fact accounting. So, you know, it gets people away from talking about the government borrowed to spend that money. You know, it's like, no, no, the, the, the pounds or the Aussie dollars that the people are using to pay taxes or buy government bonds, so-called borrowing, came from the government in the first place. So the only place they can come from. And I think that's a very powerful talking point and something that people can investigate. It's either empirically true or it's not. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the reasons that I really wanted to speak with both of you was to give people a sense that MMT is of global importance. Um, whatever nation you're living in, whatever kind of monetary system you're living under, 
Um, and so where's, where's the single point of reference for figuring out what's going on? Like, <laughs> um, just off the top of my head, there's a website called we can have nice things. That's, um, some activists in the States who a number of years ago started compiling everything that they could find on the internet about MMT from the, the academic papers to the blogs, to podcasts and, uh, streams and stuff like that. But then also based in the UK, we've got the Gower Initiative for Modern Money Studies, which is a, a website, and they compile all the resources that they can get their hands on as well. And uh, you've got the Real Progressives in the States, which is a huge website with loads of resources. And I, I know that the problem with this is now I'm talking about three different places that you have to visit. Um, <laughs> and and uh, we're after a single sort of news feed. I think that's going to be tricky and it probably isn't something we necessarily want you know because once something becomes like oh this is the you know only trusted source for this then you it's like trumpism then isn't it it's like you know everything else is not everything else that's not my tweets is fake news you know i think just being right. aware of the the main people that do the compiling is good and then yeah. also um I'm not sure how active it is now. They probably stopped adding to it a while ago, but the New Economics Perspectives blog, which was started by Stephanie Kelton, is mm -hmm. good. And and then obviously Bill Mitchell is uh, blogging most days. So it's just a mm. bit more challenging of a blog, but if you're ready for the the uh, the hard stuff, then yeah, by all means. You know that that blog is getting read every day. Mm. Well, that's usually helpful to hear about your recommendations for some of the places to go online because I have noticed you can still type into Google MMT something and you will still get all the misinformation. And I think perhaps because that's been around longer, so you'll get the debate, but you won't get the original sources and the, uh, the pro MMT stuff. So it's still quite difficult to find online without recommendations. Yeah. Um but you mentioned something earlier in the introduction about something very particular to MMT, which I believe is is the only economic theory that has had both an academic arm and a an, an activist arm, and and I do think MMT owes a lot to the dissemination from activists. That can sometimes create problems because, of course, most of these people are not trained in economics. They're not trained in the jargon, on, on, on the nuance. And uh, Bill Mitchell and the other academics put a lot of effort on uh, sort of keeping everybody in line <laughs> in terms <laughs> of messaging, which, you know, it, it's still hard, but, but they try. And me and Christian are also trying to bring those activists together with the academics mm. in a way as to help that help people uh, who are already interested in MMT get a more nuanced understanding of, of how MMT works. I, I would say, like, if you are an advocate and you're interested to this, uh, one of the really useful things you can always do is just add the sentence, as far as I know, <laughs> or as, far as, I, yeah. as I understand it. Yeah. Because then, then when people are always trying to take you out of context, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Kevin and I always say we're not economists and we are guilty as, as anyone of saying things like, you know, deficits don't matter, for example. As you say, there's more nuance to a statement like that. I think I think it's all about context. If you're going to spend money and get a bumper sticker made saying deficits don't matter, that's a bad idea, right? <laughs> but if you're in a, a social situation where saying the words deficits don't matter will provoke a, a, a good faith response mm. like okay what what do you mean by that let's talk about it and then you get to lay out the uh, mmt money story and the perspective that um a government deficit is is matched by a, a non-government surplus and, and and work through the implications of that then that was a good time to say deficits don't matter. So it, context is all, I think. Mm. And and just adding, I think activists are doing a great job and I, I will never criticize their contributions on, on anything like that. It's just about us giving them more support. Um, and, and what really bothers me is that people doing counter arguments on the basis of what activists say 
is usually academics, <laughs> mainstream academics, who should really know better, right? Right. You know, and and find the academic sources. But it, it almost seems like the activists are like scapegoats in order to blame for the whole portrayal of MMT. In a way, you could chalk that up to the success of the academics. The power of their arguments and scholarship is that the detractors amongst the academic community then have to switch the fight to, oh, here's what proponents are saying. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they'll use the word proponents instead of like people on Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, um, could you remind us how we can hear more of your work, particularly on the podcast? <laughs> We're basically available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Uh, if you put um, MMT podcast with Patricia Pino, because I think she's got the more memorable uh, uh, name and uh, obviously she's the clever one. Remember Patricia Pino. The foreign name. Yeah. Then <laughs> you'll find our podcast if you search that. That's how you can hear from us. That MMT podcast. If I'm tweeting about MMT, I tweet at MMT podcast. And Patricia's handle is at... Patricia N. Pino. Patricia Pino was taken, unfortunately. So it's uh, Patricia N. Pino. And do you have any other projects aside from the podcast going that you'd like to mention? I started doing this uh, Masters at Torrens. I'm going to try and share the thoughts that come up while I'm reading the material that I'm reading mm. uh, on on our Patreon feed. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, I've been writing over quite a few years now a comedy show about mmt um trying to create a narrative in inside it and um i've done little bits of it here and there like in front of actual people and uh some of that is on our patreon feed as well mm -hmm. I'm, I'm i'm always working on that in, in the background well, thank you so much for popping over to Radio MMT and I highly, highly recommend people put the MMT podcast in as part of their regular listening because you have such fascinating guests exploring all these different aspects of what's really possible for an economy that works for everyone. And, and I often just want to steal your audio, actually, and just broadcast it on this show. <laughs> just give me blanket rights to, to, to just steal from you. <laughs> Go for it. O overexposure is not a problem for us. <laughs> well, thank you again. Thank you. Yeah. I like the way that Christian was highlighting that the government only spends one way. And I have to admit, even after I understood that we need to think of money as this monetary system, which is a legally codified accounting system, and that money isn't just the coins and the notes, but even after I understood all that, I would still think, oh, maybe the government could recycle the money that it gets back in taxes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so perhaps... If I'd heard the message that the government has only one way to spend, I would have clued into that a bit more quickly. Yeah. So the deficit, I guess it doesn't matter in one particular way, which is that it doesn't limit the ability of the government to spend in the future. I used not to understand this. And then the more I think about it, I, I wondered to myself, how could I never have not understood this? It's really not that, <laughs> that complicated. You've got governments saying that they need to run balanced budgets or preferably surpluses. Mm. And so that's just been drummed into us. And then you look at it and you just go, that is just a ludicrous concept because this is double entry accounting. It goes out of the government sector and into the private sector. The government sector deficit is a private sector surplus. That's how your books balance. Mm. And they always leave that half of the sentence out. That's when Stephanie Kelton says in that Finding the Money documentary that it's like looking at the world with one eye open and one eye closed and you're only seeing half the picture. Yeah. So much of the public discourse, it's like we're going through life with one eye shut and one eye open and we're only getting half the picture. And then somebody like me comes in and says, well, let's make sure we see the full picture. But it's such a basic uh, accounting concept uh, that once you've been told... How can you not see it still? <laughs> and this is what we're talking about, is once you see this stuff, you can't unsee it. You go, okay, it's not important that the government 
balances its one sector. Mm. It's balanced through the two sectors, which is essentially the government sector and the non-government sector. It's really not that complicated, um, <laughs> but nobody seems to get it. Well, if you're really married to the idea that it's only the private sector that creates wealth and the government should get out of the picture, you're going to stick with all those bad economic ideas. Yeah, yeah, but I've never seen a, a, any form of currency that has uh, this is the property of bloody Gina Reinhardt on it. It's not it's a reserve <laughs> bank of Australia. So again, these are really simple concepts. The government makes the money. It injects it into the economy, books balance, tick that box and move on. But they don't. <laughs> well, speaking of moving... I'm going to have a breakdown soon. <laughs> before before you, you lose it, it is time to uh, let Mafelda into the studio. Yep, but not before I mention that uh, there's still time to jump in your car and scoot down to the Lockhart Music Festival, which is on this weekend. There are some great bands playing, mm. L-O-C-H-H-A-R-T, uh, there's still tickets available. It's going to be a great weekend. We'll see you there. Okay, we'll see you there, Kevin. See you next time. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have you heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of, like, macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomic band. Like, we could deliver this whole message by music. Well, we could call the band the Permanent Income Hypothesis or the Ricardian Equivalence or Rational Expectations. I think we're onto something here. We're trying to make macroeconomics more interesting to the masses. We're going to, like, form this band and sing it to them. And we're going we're to bring the economists in. We're going to get musical. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.